Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. You'll notice around the seats or the pews, there are copies of the Gospel of John uh, around, and they are not just to kind of scatter and decorate the place. They are there for us to, as we hear John's Gospel read uh, today, chapters 18 and 19, uh, 18, 19, uh, they're there for you to follow along at the right time, um, so please, um, and they're also a gift to you. If you'd like to take it away and read it all, they are for you today. Let's pray as we come before God's Word. Peter writes, For Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. Lord, please penetrate our hearts afresh this day with the glorious truth of your great love for sinners like us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're here on Good Friday, and it's Good Friday for a reason. Uh, why was Jesus, why was Jesus of Nazareth nailed to the cross on that first Good Friday? Why was it? Jesus' brief 33-year life, and more particularly his three years of public ministry, Jesus, he lived and and he taught and he acted in such a way to influence whole cultures, empires, leadership styles, business styles, and he impacted literally billions and billions of men and women across the globe. And yet Jesus was nailed to a cross on that first Good Friday. Instinctively, I think many of us are drawn to his teaching right across the world, you know, love your enemy. Do good to those who hate you. Love your neighbour as yourself. So radically different to any other religion or philosophy you may ever encounter. And yet Jesus was nailed to a cross on that first Good Friday. No serious student of, of history, of architecture, of sociology, art or science can take their study seriously without a real genuine consideration of the cross of Christ and its impact on our world and Yet Jesus was nailed to that cross. In a few moments, we're going to read through John's account of the passion of Christ. Why was it that Jesus died? And just briefly today, this morning, I want to look at four Old Testament verses used by the Apostle John to interpret Jesus' death. You'll find them in the copy of John's Gospel on pages 58 and 59, if you're looking for them. They'll also be on the screen. You'll see in the first two of the Old Testament verses, John's teaching you and me today that Jesus' death is a royal death uh, that establishes Jesus' beautiful kingdom. And we'll find that the second two Old Testament verses, John teaches us with them to show that Jesus' death was a sacrificial death that enables people like you and me to enter Jesus' perfect kingdom. So firstly, a royal death. Jesus establishes his kingdom. The first of the two Old Testament verses we're going to look at come from Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, respectively. Um, And John, the writer of this gospel, is showing us that Jesus dies the death of God's King. Uh, So if you follow along, uh, John chapter 19, verse 23 to 24, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, With the undergarment remaining, this garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. 
Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. The second Old Testament reference you'll find is in John 19, 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Both these psalms, Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, they're royal Davidic psalms that speak of God's king and in particular God's king who will suffer a king who is zealous for the truth and the honour of God's name. And, and you know that when a New Testament author quotes uh, from the Old Testament scriptures, it's the meaning of the text in its original setting that the New Testament author is kind of looking for. I, I, I want to confess to you, I've paid probably far little attention to the Psalms when it comes to understanding Jesus' death. So Psalm 22, the suffering king He's forsaken by God and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's poured out like water. His bones are out of joint. His heart is like wax. His hands and feet are pierced. His enemies stare at him and gloat at him. They divide his garments. They they cast lots for his clothes. And John wants you and me to see that the crucified Jesus is the promised suffering king. That this is a royal death. And Jesus is suffering just as God insisted he would. And because of Jesus' unwavering and absolute faithfulness and concern for the truth and glory of God's name, this king will be pierced by his enemies. So the point of Jesus' kingship and his determined stand for truth is being made. It's a point that, and a stand that Jesus has made throughout his whole earthly ministry. It's a point that was made at his phony trial that we're going to hear about. Pilate says, you are a king then? To which Jesus responds, you say that I am a king. For this reason I was born. For this reason I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. It's a point that's made when they put this sign above Jesus' head on the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews written in Aramaic, the language of the Jews, written in Latin, the language of the Romans, written in Greek for the intelligentsia. And now the point is being made as the soldiers fulfill the details of Psalm 22. Jesus is dying a royal death. This is God's long-promised king, and he's establishing God's long-promised perfect kingdom. Second, of the Old Testament text, which is fulfilled in Jesus' death, shows us why this ruler's dying. Psalm 69, it's another royal psalm. The king is suffering significantly in Psalm 69. He's weary with his suffering at the hands of God's enemy. His throat is dry. He looks for pity, but he finds none. They give him sour wine for his thirst. But his death, now in Psalm 69, is explained as being on account of his zeal and passion for God's name and God's glory. The king suffers because he stands resolutely for everything that the enemies of God hate. In Psalm 69 we read, zeal for your house consumes me, and yet the reproaches of those who hate God fall on me. That's what the king says. In Psalm 69, Psalm 22, 
the royal king. He stands alone for truth and righteousness and purity. Stands alone in zeal for God's glory and his name. He's unique. The point? John is telling us that Jesus goes to the cross to death as God's royal ruler, the Lord of truth. For truth I have come into the world. The king of unwavering, rock-solid loyalty to the living God. The Lord and king of all that is pure and right. Zeal for your house consumes me. And for me, right, that the uniqueness and the beauty of King Jesus is made all the more clear and wonderful when you contrast it with just the list of, ca- of casualties of truth and loyalty and purity that litter the pathway all the way up to the cross. Judas. Judas failed to stand for truth. He sacrificed truth for cash, a little bag of silver. Peter failed to stand for truth. He sacrificed truth to save his skin. I never knew him. The priests failed to stand for truth and loyalty. They sacrificed those things to keep their status and their place at high table. Pilate failed to stand for truth. He's the classic postmodern. What is truth? He sacrificed truth for political gain and expediency. The mob, the crowd, they they, they failed to stand for truth. They didn't even think about truth. We have no king but Caesar, they say. They cried as they were swept along. And the soldiers, they failed to stand for truth as they beat Jesus to a pulp. So as Jesus hangs there alone on the cross on that first Good Friday, well, with one criminal either side, he's unique. Here is one royal ruler who stood for everything that humanity fails to do. Failed to stand for truth, zeal. He had zeal and glory for God's name. It's a really important emphasis. John's going to show us in the next two Old Testament kind of references that Jesus' death is a sacrificial death. It's a substitutionary death for you and for me. But before John does that, he quotes these two royal psalms to show us that All the way through the Passion narrative, this is the death of God's perfect king. And that he alone, unique amongst humanity, unique among all the religions and philosophies of the world, that Jesus goes to his death bearing the hatred and reproach of every single human being who's existed and will ever exist. You know, but some you might you might say to me this morning, but Simon, you can't lump me in with Judas and Peter and the priests and the mob and the soldiers, really? Have you never, like Pilate, compromised truth through a bit of power, some gain? Have you never, like Peter, compromised loyalty to save your skin? I never knew him. Or been carried along by the crowd knowing that it wasn't right? Or acted in rejection of what you know is God's truth in order to preserve your, your place at work or on the board or in the family like the priest's? This is a royal death that establishes Jesus' kingdom, zeal for his father. People hated him because Jesus testified to the truth, testified to everything that God stands for. So in the other two Old Testament references, which we're perhaps more familiar with and the theme which often comes out at Easter, they're in John chapter 19, verse 36 and 37. This is a, a sacrificial death that enables you and me to enter into Jesus' kingdom. 
Once we see that Jesus is establishing this wonderful kingdom, a place of absolute truth and uprightness and peace and goodness, we've got to ask the question, I've got to ask myself, could I ever have a place in this kingdom? Why? Because each one of us is amongst the casualties that litter the road to Calvary. People who've failed at every point of truth and loyalty and integrity, at least I have. And on the other side of Jesus' death, we find these two further references that speak explicitly of a sacrificial death of Jesus that enables entry for casualties like you and me into the kingdom of God. The first one's there in chapter 19, verse 36. These things happened so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. That's Exodus 12, Numbers 9. It refers to the Passover lamb that was sacrificed in order to bear God's judgment, his wrath at human sin and rebellion. You probably know this. On the night of the Passover, every Israelite household was to sacrifice a lamb. And the blood of that lamb that was sacrificed would be painted on the door frames, on the lintel of the door frames, such that when the angel of death and judgment came, he would pass over the places where the blood was because a death had taken place. So as Jesus cried out, it is finished, not I am finished, but it is finished, John the writer interprets the death for us. Yes, it's a royal death, but Jesus dying as the Passover lamb. Remember John the Baptist? You can read about it in John chapter 1 of the the Gospels you have. As, As Jesus is walking along the road, John the Baptist sees him down the road and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who's come to take away the sin of the world. And just as every Jewish household had to have the blood of the Lamb on the lintel of the doorframe in order to be spared from God's terrifying judgment, so it is today that every man, woman, and child must find shelter in and under Jesus in order for them to pass through the judgment to come. Jesus, the Passover Lamb, who on the cross is carrying on him God's just, just judgment. And to make sure we've absolutely grasped and nailed the point, the final Old Testament reference that John uses to interpret Jesus' death comes in chapter 19, verse 37. Another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. This comes from Zechariah chapter 12. Where the one who is pierced is the shepherd, the shepherd being a royal king. And where following his piercing, Zechariah says, On that day there will be a fountain open to cleanse people from their sin and their unrighteousness. You know, I don't know, you, just like me, we find ourselves standing with Judas and Pilate and Peter and the mob and the priests and the soldiers all of us in need of cleansing. Something, desperately, something we need, something to avert the judgment of God. My personal sin and rebellion, my failures, your failures. And here we have a fountain of blood. It's a bizarre picture, isn't it? That the blood would cleanse. And yet because this is the death of God's king, Bearing on himself the judgment of our sin, so judgment 
through faith in this lamb, faith in Jesus, removes that sin from us and God's judgment from us, we are cleansed, washed and purified. Able, through faith in Jesus, faith in that blood, faith in that Passover lamb, now able to take our place in the most perfect kingdom, a kingdom of goodness and purity and truth and eternal life. And so right at the heart of the passion narrative we're about to read, Jesus cries out in chapter 19, verse 30, it is finished. Which one Bible translator says, accomplished, achieved, done. Not I'm finished, it is finished. And so as we turn to the cross on this day, Let me leave you with these words. I turn to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, Plunged in God-forsaken darkness, Jesus laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Good Friday. Good Friday. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who portrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? I am he. Oh, sorry. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Cephas, the high priest that year. Sophias was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. 
It was cold and the servants and officials stood round a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I'm not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a cock began to crow. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him, give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have the power to either free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. 
From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the, so, so the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony 
and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And, as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about 35 kilograms. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. I'm going to take some time now to pray to God, our Father, to thank him for Jesus, uh, for his life and what we have in him. So please join me in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you today mindful of both the horror and the grandeur, both the ugliness and the beauty of the cross. We stand amazed at your Son, the Lord Jesus, and we praise you for his sovereign authority over all of these events. The one who cries, I am he. The one who self-consciously and deliberately acts at each moment to fulfil what is written in your scripture. We praise you for our Saviour's Saviour's courage. He didn't shrink back from his calling, even as the mob with torches and weapons approached him. He came forward to give himself up and also protected his disciples. We praise you that he went knowingly and willingly towards the danger willingly to willing to drink the full cup of your wrath we praise you for jesus strength that even as he stood before the man who held his life and death in his hands he declared to pilate you would have no authority over me unless it was given you from heaven we praise you not simply for jesus great courage and strength but also for his amazing love and amazing compassion. Even as he is arrested, Jesus was still thinking of his disciples, their future and security. We praise you that even as Jesus' life drained from his body, he ensured that his mother was cared for. We praise you for Jesus' tenderness and his love even in the midst of unimaginable stress, pain and agony. And Father, in light of Jesus' transparent love, kindness and goodness, we see in these verses the wretchedness of our sinful and rebellious hearts that when your son came to earth, we, the human race, killed him. 
We see in these events how Jesus exposes our sense of goodness in the religious leaders. We see how we can so easily turn obedience and piety into a perverse way of keeping you at arm's length and resisting your call and claim over us. We see in Peter our insistence on, speak, on seeking to spiritual um, heroes, um, to be spiritual heroes, confident that we have in us what it takes. We see how quickly we fail at the point of testing. And so we thank you all the more today that Jesus is our Passover lamb. We thank you that as we hear so often in these verses that there is no guilt in him. We praise you that Jesus is the unique, unblemished, spotless lamb, none of his bones broken, the one who uniquely stands in and has taken our punishment and judgment upon himself. So we thank you that despite how often we find ourselves in Pilate's shoes, the religious leader's shoes, Peter's shoes, we thank you that this passion narrative holds out to us the wonderful possibility of wearing Barabbas's shoes. As we think about Barabbas standing in his prison cell facing just and deserved punishment for his crimes and in a flash being released into the fresh, free air of freedom, the sun on his face reunited with family and friends and knowing all the time that he could only walk free as another stands in his place. We thank you that these are the shoes we get to wear because of your grace and mercy. Not only today on Good Friday, but every day. That each day we get to breathe the fresh air of freedom in Christ and know the secure embrace of being adopted by grace into your family. And we praise you that the future reality where we... Um, we, where we'll sail through the judgment is all because of, the, of Jesus' finished work on the cross. Thank you for the assurance you give us, knowing that our forgiveness is complete. So, Father, as these truths are celebrated across the globe today, we pray for your universal church. Help us to be centred and united in this wonderful saving news. We pray for our brothers and sisters who on this Good Friday face severe persecution. May they know your deep love for them, that you feel their pain and that you hold them in the palm of your bloodied hands. Thank you for the resources of the gospel, Father, that empower us, your people, to be ministers of grace, mercy and truth. May the events we celebrate today stir in us a greater Christ-like compassion for our world. By your spirit, wake the spiritually asleep today. By your spirit, make us a thankful and devoted people. By your spirit, help us all to never wander far from the cross, for we always need your grace. Lord, we pray for an increase of your unstoppable kingdom. In the name of our beautiful Saviour, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.